every shot that you hit as a, a high handicap or low handicap or whatever, every shot you hit is a valuable opportunity for you to get better. And because high handicappers have a much greater window to get better, every shot has even more value towards that window, right? So, but what most people do, and I don't think that they think about it this way, but they put a value judgment on a shot. If they hit it good, that's good. If they hit it bad, that's bad. And no doubt that a good shot feels good and a bad shot feels bad. But if you start looking at this from an information perspective, and if your ultimate goal is learning, as opposed to your ultimate goal being looking good on the driving range, then all of a sudden it changes, again, the relationship with the shot. Hitting a bad shot feels bad, no question about it, but what can you learn from it, right? And that becomes a really important question. What can I learn from this shot? Whether it, I hit it well, whether I hit it poorly, whatever, what can I learn from it? Today we are talking about learning. We're going to look at the big picture as well as get you the tactics that you're interested in. We have a conversation that's relevant if you're just getting started to golf or you play on tour. This conversation about growing and getting better is for everybody. The reason that we don't like hitting bad shots it's not because we're egomaniacs about it, it's because of human nature. Doing poorly shows our frailty, it shows some chink in the armor. And human nature, which is absolutely for survival and procreation, but we won't talk about that during this conversation, but human nature is for survival. And so you don't want to show chinks in the armor. That's our genetics from eons ago, right? So. What human nature is not designed for is greatness. So for you to reach your greatness, you have to rise above human nature. And specifically what we're talking about, that means that you have to look at every golf shot you hit, not from a, an emotional reaction to it, but from an opportunity to learn and gain. And when you start doing that, every shot has value. And that takes away the frustration and adds to it the value. You are listening to the Golf Science Lab podcast. My name is Cordy Walker, and I'm on a mission to figure out how to improve the way that we learn and get better at golf. I've been able to travel all over the world talking with leaders in the industry, from instructors to researchers to golfers themselves, learning how they're getting better at golf and what that means for you. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are looking at myths and misconceptions. We're still in that series. Uh, and today, looking at practice and learning, a great researcher joins us, Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. You might recognize his name. He was one of our guests in the first season of the podcast where we talked all about practice. He joined us to explain this concept of challenge point, really key concept when it comes to understanding how we learn. So he teaches at UNLV. He works with the golf team there who've produced some really good golfers over the years. So he understands elements of research and application, which is so key. So we sat down and had this chat about some of the biggest myths that he sees. And I listened back to it and was like, hey, let's just run it. We don't need to edit this. So you're going to listen to this really, really good chat that we had about this topic that I'm really, I mean, every time I talk about practice and learning, I get excited. And so it was just a lively conversation between us. Mark is just a fantastic guy and really someone that we can learn a lot from when our golf games and how we learn and how we get better in the rest of our lives as well. So 
Thank you so much for listening. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast so you can join us for all the bits and pieces that come in between these main episodes. Uh, we should be in Spotify by now. We also have an Alexa skill, Apple podcast, lots of different ways to listen. So make sure to subscribe and listen in to all these different episodes that we have coming out. So much good stuff planned over these next few months. If you're listening to this during your off season, that you can take this time to get better and make a, a plan for next year. Put yourself in a better place to improve and get better. Gravity Fit is a sponsor for today's podcast. If you haven't seen it, it's a little hard to visually describe. So right off the bat, we have a handful of videos of time I spent with the PT talking about Gravity Fit at golfsciencelab.com slash gravity fit. And here's why it's a fascinating tool. A lot of us struggle with posture, spinal stability, shoulder strength, largely due to the sedentary nature of our working lifestyle, slumped in a poor posture over our computers and phones. And that makes achieving consistent, neutral athletic golf posture elusive, which often results in poor swing mechanics and not very good ball striking. Gravity Fit helps solve this problem by building awareness, stability, and strength in the key postural and stability muscles responsible for great posture and quality movement. And the really cool thing is that the tools can be used from rehab to the range. Doubling is a fantastic swing aid can be used while practicing. It's currently in use by over 30 PGA Tour pros, trainers, and coaches, along with thousands of recreational golfers all around the world. Make sure to learn more at gravityfit.com and on our site, listen to golfsciencelab.com slash gravityfit to check out the podcast and videos that dive deeper into the theory and application of this cool tool. Start us off. The myth of perfect practice. Describe that myth of what people think about that when they hear that first. Define that. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think what most people think about is that they want to go out and hit the ball perfect in practice. They want to just basically go out and stripe it. And when they do that, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, look how much I'm learning. And the reciprocal of that, by the way, is imperfect practice. And that is where you struggle and, and so forth. And it turns out that perfect practice is not the way to optimize learning. So imagine, Cordy, if I gave you arithmetic problems, right? What's three plus nine? What's five plus six? And so forth and so on. You would essentially have perfect math practice, but you wouldn't be learning any math because you already know that stuff. If I challenged you and you struggled, then you would start learning math. And the one that people, everybody knows, although it's rarely translated into practice, golf practice, if you go to a gym and you're lifting weights and it's super easy and you're super successful, nobody would think, look how much stronger I'm getting. That what they would think is that was a pretty weak workout, right? And yet in golf, when people do the equivalent of lifting light weights, they think about it as this is gonna, this is great. I'm playing great. I'm gonna translate to the golf course. And it unfortunately doesn't happen. So instead of striving for perfection during practice, we need to strive for a good learning environment. And one aspect of that is, is challenge points. What you're describing is you yeah. need to have a level of desirable difficulty. Could you define challenge point for us real quick? Mm -hmm. So challenge point is the idea that you are optimizing for challenge during practice. And what that means is 
that you have a difficulty of the task. So this could be the shot that you hit, the precision that you're requiring of yourself, maybe in some cases the lie, the pressure that you put on yourself, all of these things. And you're doing it at a level that rather than being easy, actually requires some challenge. And now you've got, you know, 60, 70% success rate instead of, you know, 80 or 90% success rate. And it won't feel as good initially because you're struggling, but it will feel great when all of a sudden you go out and you play your best round. And to, you know, to expand the weightlifting analogy, it would be the equivalent of lifting a weight that's difficult for you that you could only do like eight to 10 reps with this weight. And that's your sweet spot of where you're getting the most gain. If you can do something that you could do 30 reps and you do 10, or you could only do two reps and you try to do 10, um, neither of those are optimizing your growth. It's that place in the middle where you have some degree of success and some degree of failure. So devil's advocate here, your example is someone might say, Mark, golf is totally different. It's way more complex and, and difficult, and that doesn't really apply here. We hear mm-hmm. that a lot when you referenced learning research outside of golf, right? Sure. What, what's your experience with that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of that is legitimate. Golf is very different. Golf is very, very complex at some level. Ultimately, it's very simple. You get people who are the best at the game, and it's a simple game to them. And even, even people, any individual will tell you that when they're playing their best, it feels very simple and very easy. But the thing about it is we're talking about the mechanism for learning, right? And the mechanism for learning is it's the same regardless of what you're learning, essentially. And when you have something that's, that's complex like golf, you need to utilize efficient mechanisms even more because it's so complicated. And so I would actually go the opposite direction and say, if it's something that's super simple, you know, let's say the golf swing was super simple, which it is not. If it was something that's super simple, you don't have to optimize your learning environment because you're going to figure it out anyway. But if it's something that's complex which golf is, the golf swing is, now you better optimize your learning environment or you don't really have a great chance of learning it. So let's talk in some examples here. So for instance, let's say we have a short game task where we're going to play nine holes of getting the ball up and down. Mm -hmm. And our goal is to get it up and down in two you know, we can change the difficulty of that task by where we place the ball around the green. For instance, mm-hmm. if we mm-hmm. put it on the fringe, you know, right off the green, that might be more appropriate for a higher handicap golfer, where for a professional, you're going to want to throw it in the deepest, darkest rough and to the tightest pin and mm-hmm. really challenge them. Right. Talk to me about scaling that. How do we know what the appropriate challenge of, we don't want to be perfect, right? Like you talked about, but do we want to fail every time? It's a great question. And I think it's, to me, it's one of the, the secret sauces to this whole thing. And, you know, most people, and I think I would be in this situation as well, if I'm just hearing this, I would want to know what percentage of success and failure do I need, right? So I'll tell you, as a general rule, if you have 
around 65% success rate, then you're probably in the sweet spot. And I say that because of a couple of things. One, that means that there's learning that's happened. You're challenging yourself. You're having to think about the shots. You're putting pressure on yourself. These are all great things to help you actually learn. And we can dive into the physiology of learning if you want. But but the other piece of that is that there's some nuance to it depending on who you are as a person and how you're made up psychologically. There are some people who I would say, okay, even if 65 is ideal, I'm going to create a situation for them where maybe it's 75% success rate. That's not ideal from a learning perspective, but from a motivational perspective, it helps, right? And then there's somebody else who they, we may drop it down to 50% or so because they actually thrive from the additional challenge. And so there's a psychology, a secret sauce around this as well. But in general, I would say when you're talking about 65 to 70% success rate, you're probably in the right ballpark of that. And what about the guys listening that's just like, hey, guys, I'm just trying to hit the ball well. Like, yeah. you know, this is great and all for for you guys that are single handicaps, but this is not relevant to me. What do you say to him? Yeah, I think it's a great question. And in fact, one of the things that we have not said, you and I have not said in this conversation, is what success means, right? So, Success to the person that you're talking about now may be good contact on the ball. It may even be just hitting the ball. Like, I mean, I, I learned the game as an adult. So for me, when I very first started playing, to be able to hit seven balls in a row where I actually hit them was a really cool thing. That was my level of success at the time. And then as I improved, what I use as my criteria for success changed. And so I think that, you know, one of the real keys of this is that challenge point scales to the individual. The individual defines what is success. And that definition and the challenge that they have over time is going to change. And that's going to continue to optimize. You know, again, we're not talking about learning per se, but the weightlifting analogy is a great analogy. When you very first go into the gym, if you're not fit, you're not going to start, you know, running five minute miles and bench pressing 250 pounds. You're going to start at some level that is your appropriate level of challenge so that you can do eight to 10 repetitions so that you can run for five minutes or whatever it happens to be. And the problem is, and this is really important. The problem is, if you stayed at that level, you will start ha- reaching diminishing returns in your learning. And so, people inherently know in a uh, weightlifting environment or a workout environment that if I want to get better, as I get more and more fit, I have to challenge myself more and more. And the same thing happens in golf. So, the cool thing is, the challenge point scales to the individual and it's scaled to children to adults to older adults to athletes even to people with parkinson's disease and a whole host of other areas in well more than a hundred research studies that have been done on it and over and over and over again we see the same thing that there is a sweet spot there is some place in the middle where you're optimizing your learning
because the demands of hitting a seven iron are very different for someone that plays once a year versus once a week, right? right. So right. attempting to hit the ball solidly, you know, three out of six times might be the, the correct challenge point for mm -hmm. someone that plays once a year. Whereas hitting it within a, a 40 yard kind of target left and right would be more appropriate for someone that plays once a week, for instance. And so we could change our, our expectations and our goals to set that challenge point for a task. Is, is that on the right track? That's exactly right. And I think that, you know, one of the things where the individual can do this, or if they're working with a coach could do it as well, is if you, you're hitting that seven iron and your, ta your uh, challenge is to hit a green that's, you know, 160 yards out and you end up hitting that green three times, that may be too much of a challenge. So, okay, keep in mind, we're looking at around 65, 70%. Let me say that my, you know, I'm going to hit this and I'm going to fly it, you know, at least halfway there and see what that means for me as far as success rate. And so, and it really changes your relationship with practice because practice becomes something where you learn something from each and every shot and you are in control of the practice. Most people, what's common is that they, and this is one of the great myths of practice, they equate the number of balls hit to the amount of learning that happens. And that's just not true. It's all about the quality, or not all, but it's, it's about the quality. And as you get better and better, it's more and more about the quality of practice than it is the number of balls hit. When you're very first starting out, you know, you need to hit a lot of golf balls. But as you get better and better, it becomes more and more about the quality of what you're doing. And the quality, a lot of that has to do with how you've challenged yourself in the game, the game of practice. For me, quality, I guess, in, in my research and my study of what's been done, that at the core of all this, if we could pick one thing, it would almost that, that we'd be cognitively engaged in what we're doing, that we're mm -hmm. looking at some level of input, that we're going through somewhat of a problem-solving activity and then giving it our best solution that we have. And that's maybe how I would define what you just said. How would you define that? Am I on the right path? Am I wrong anywhere? No, I think it's a great definition. I mean, I think that to a large extent, quality, you know, you think about it as a return on investment right? You're going to hit X number of balls. What's the return on that investment? What do I learn? What do I get out of that? And so if you hit 100 balls and you have a half percent gain in your ability, that was pretty poor quality in there. And for the most part, if you are a, I'll say probably 18 handicap or lower, for you to do something like that doesn't make any sense at all. And in fact, what you should be doing is seeing how few balls you can hit to get the most out of it. So a small bucket of balls can be a great practice because what happens is you have some limitation to the number of balls you hit. And so you're going to pay attention and each one of those balls is all of a sudden going to be important to you, just like they are on the course, right? So there is no throwaway shot. And so the quality really is to, you know, to what you just said, how engaged you are in the process, how much you get out of each shot. And a lot of that starts before you ever hit the first shot. And that is what we talked about before. And that's setting up your goals. What am I trying to accomplish here today? And now I've only got 
30 golf balls, how am I going to accomplish it with those 30 golf balls? When you start looking at things from that perspective, all of a sudden it changes your relationship with each and every shot, which not only helps you in practice, but it also helps you when you're actually playing because you have had a relationship with every shot. I know that that phrasing sounds sort of weird, a relationship with every shot, but I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who go out and just mindlessly hit a bunch of golf balls and wonder why they don't get any better. But they don't have a relationship with any of those shots. It's just swinging, basically. That is a phenomenal phrase. I love that. I have a relationship with every golf shot. I'm going to get that tattooed on my on my wrist, I think, so I can see that um, as I'm playing. I love it. You know, I, I think what's interesting, Mark, is that I love talking about learning. So, I, I try to do as much as possible on, on practice and, and share this. And, and I feel like a lot of people view that content as attempting to make practice more difficult, make it unrealistic, and it's not relevant for mm-hmm. a higher handicap, mid-handicap golfer. It's almost like you're just talking to the single handicaps, the competitive amateurs, et cetera, mm-hmm. and the pros. And I think that's the farthest thing from the reality is that, in fact, it's most beneficial because our goal is practice needs to be a lot easier and your expectations need to change a lot if you're a mid-handicap and understanding challenge point is going to help you so much. And you're going to be so, uh, you're going to lose a lot of frustration if you a- apply this and you are a mid to high handicapper. Absolutely. And one of the things to your point of frustration is every shot that you hit as a, a high handicapper, low handicapper, whatever, every shot you hit is a valuable opportunity for you to get better. And because high handicappers have a much greater window to get better, every shot has even more value towards that window, right? So, but what most people do, and I don't think that they think about it this way, but they put a value judgment on a shot. If they hit it good, that's good. If they hit it bad, that's bad. And no doubt that a good shot feels good and a bad shot feels bad. But if you start looking at this from an information perspective, and if your ultimate goal is learning, as opposed to your ultimate goal being looking good on the driving range, then all of a sudden it changes, again, the relationship with the shot. Hitting a bad shot feels bad, no question about it, but what can you learn from it, right? And that becomes a really important question. What can I learn from this shot? Whether I hit it well, whether I hit it poorly, whatever, what can I learn from it? And when you start thinking about it from that perspective, it isn't so much about frustration. It's about learning. And here's the trick to this. The reason that we don't like hitting bad shots, it's not because we're egomaniacs about it. It's because of human nature. Doing poorly shows our frailty. It shows some chink in the armor. And human nature, which is absolutely for survival and procreation, but we won't talk about that during this conversation, but human nature is for survival. And so you don't want to show chinks in the armor. That's our genetics from eons ago, right? So what human nature is not designed for is greatness. So for you to reach your greatness, you have to rise above human nature. And specifically what we're talking about, that means that you have to look at every golf shot you hit, not from a, an emotional reaction to it, but from an opportunity to learn and gain. And when you start doing that, every shot has value. 
and that takes away the frustration and adds to it the value. Wow. I think we're going to add some like applause after that, that little segment there, because that was an awesome way to, to wrap that up. Maybe to, to kind of give people an application here to end this concept of perfect practice, run through your routine of what you would like to see someone do, whether they are just trying to hit the ball solidly or they're, uh, you know, they're on tour and, and trying to improve a, an aspect of their game. What kind of routine? I know you've talked about setting goals and that kind of thing, but just run through it real quickly, maybe. Yeah, I, I'll tell you. As simple as it sounds and as obvious as that it sounds, setting a goal before you ever hit your first shot, your first putt, whatever, becomes really important. And writing it down and keep referring to it during that practice session because we get lost so easily in trying to chase a good shot, right? So if my goal, for example, I mentioned earlier that one of my goals is is keeping my angle through the swing, my wrist angle through the swing. If that's my goal, and then I'm going to set up all my practice around that. In this particular case, that happens to mechanical goal. You could also have other types of goals, like I, I want to be able to, you know, hit a, my driver within a fairway eight out of 10 times or whatever. But whatever the goal happens to be, if I'm very clear about what I want to accomplish, I'm much more likely to accomplish that, as obvious as that sounds, right? So so you want to set the goal first, be very clear about it, and then define how you're going to achieve that goal and how you know what the success is around it. And it's not like this takes 30 minutes to do it. This is a matter of seconds or maybe a couple of minutes but you have a very clear idea of what you're trying to accomplish. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is this cycle that we talked about where you you start with tempo, then you practice whatever it is that you're trying to learn, and then you test that to see if you have learned it during practice. Very few people actually test during practice. They let their first the course, and that is not where you want your first test to be. Because as many people know, who have hit a shot poorly and then teed it up and hit it again perfectly, you do not want the first test to be that you want to do all your testing off of the course during the practice. But that cycle of tempo, practice, test, and then recycle becomes the the method. So now you kind of know, here's how I'm going to go about it. And then it's just a matter of where the games that you're going to play along the way. So one of my favorite things to do as far as practice is concerned, and it, it's one of my favorites because I think it's, it's so helpful, is we do what's called half practices. And so, so take the bucket of balls that you're going to hit, and you go out and you spend a, roughly half of those golf balls in this a tempo practice test cycle, and you really work it hard. Like, you know, you're committed to it, you're focused on it, you're working hard, and it's going to cause you some stress. But you go through about half the bucket that way, and that's all you have, right? So there's some limitations on it. And then you walk away, and you practice putting, you practice chipping, and so forth. And, you know, 20, 30 minutes later, you come back, and you go back to the range, and you start again with tempo, okay? Now, the cool thing that happens is... Since you left the range the first time, your brain continues to work on that information. It continues to process it. You get to what's called a release state, which comes from the uh, literature on flow and being in the zone and so forth. You get to a release state. So now all of a sudden you relax around 
that shot. And when you go back, you're in a beautiful place for learning because you've already primed the system. Now you're more relaxed and now you can just go. And your ability to learn increases dramatically. So that second half of the bucket all of a sudden becomes this amazing learning opportunity as opposed to kind of powering through a whole bucket, right? So that's one of the ways that I, I love to practice. And then just as a specific game, one of my favorite games is where, uh, and this, this game scales, by the way, to the stuff that we're talking about, but you start with, say, your eight iron, and you hit your eight iron to a target. And if you hit it to the target, then you get to hit your nine iron. And if you hit that nine iron to the target, then you get to hit your seven iron. And if you hit your seven iron, then the wedge. And if you hit your wedge, then the six iron. And you keep going back and forth and just see how far you can go. I want to jump to the muscle memory idea quickly. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> this, was, this was going so well until you just said that. <laughs> you were having a great time until we brought this topic up. So <laughs> we hear it. At, uh, oh, boy. Probably every time after your playing partner hits a they hit a drive great on the hole before they go to the next hole, they hit the slice into the water and they're like, I just got to get some more balls to get some muscle memory. I got to ingrain these mechanics here. Obviously I just hit one good and then one bad. Talk to me about muscle memory and ingraining mechanics. Yeah, it is one of the, uh, (laughs) I have probably a more negative visceral response to the phrase muscle memory than just about anything. And I understand completely the concept of, why people think about it and so forth, because it feels like it's your muscles kind of remembering what you're doing. But the muscles don't have memory, right? This is all in your central nervous system. It's all a learning process. And the problem is that when people go and they hit shot after shot after shot to try and ingrain that, that would be like me asking you the same math problem one time after another after another you're going to ingrain the answer to that, but you're not learning anything about math. And so to actually learn, this is what in the, in the book and we refer to as refinement training. To actually learn, you have to be able to refine the skill set. It's a little bit like, like the analogy I think about is forging steel, right? That you get the blacksmith that's pounding on the, on the sword to sharpen it and and make the steel stronger, it's kind of like that, where you have to actually forge that steel, that memory in your central nervous system so that you can execute it through your body. And you do that under pressure. When that blacksmith is pounding that steel, he's putting pressure on that steel. And that's what you need to be able to do in practice. So just hitting ball after ball after ball with this idea of trying to groove a swing not a good idea, right? That's great for discovery. That's great if you're trying to kind of discover, you're trying to figure out something in your swing, that's fine. But if your goal is actually to groove it, to refine it, to get it so that it stands up under pressure, you have to train it under pressure to be able to do that. Getting back to our concept of somebody that's just trying to to make contact, hit the ball solid here. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are especially talking about muscle memory and Mm-hmm. in ingraining mechanics. They just need to potentially lower expectations, understand what success is and isn't, and then go out and practice like we've talked about then. Is that is that kind of right? 
Yeah, I think so. And then, you know, if that person has, again, if they have a goal and they know what they want to accomplish, let's say you're an 18 handicapper and you want to get down to 14 and you're willing to invest in yourself to be able to do that and you give yourself, you know, six months, let's say, that you're willing to do it, the idea of this investment mentality, it's one of the reasons why I mentioned that book, Good to Great. The investment mentality is I'm willing to do whatever it takes over the next six months to get myself to decrease my stroke average by four, okay? And so, but what most people do is they want to go from, from you know, 18 and then just jump to 14, and when they don't do that, they get frustrated. And I'll tell you, by the way, we're talking about a higher handicap, but we were just talking with the UNLV golf team last night about this. What we're trying to get our guys to do is to figure out how to get one half stroke better every semester. One half stroke. That's it. We're trying to get them to commit to one half stroke. Okay. But what that means for these guys is they come in with a 72 scoring average and in four years, because each year they get a stroke better, they're four strokes better. That's a, that's a pretty good player, right? And all you're trying to do is get a half stroke better every six months. And this high handicapper that we're talking about, they're trying to get four strokes better in six months, right? So the idea is that if you're willing to commit to what's the next thing in front of you and be very, very consistent about that, regardless of what it feels like, you're going to get to that next level. And otherwise, you're going to do what most people do when they try to train muscle memory. You're going to go out, you're going to hit a bunch of balls, you're going to think that you're getting better, you're going to go out and play, and your score is no better than it was, and you continue to practice, and you continue not to get better. So, you know, what's your choice? You train muscle memory and don't get any better, or you train the way that we're talking about, and you actually make progress. My preference is to make progress. Absolutely. And these concepts, this framework is applicable for all parts of the game, right? Full swing, short game, putting, playing, you know, like every, every aspect. It's not just hitting golf balls on the range is, is where this applies. Yeah. I mean, we're, t- we're talking about it because of the, that's sort of the most obvious, but yeah, you're absolutely right. Every aspect of the game, every aspect. So what do you think about this idea? We've been working on this idea of project even par. I did this experiment where I teed off from different places trying to figure out where I shot even par from to figure out my challenge point based on where to tee off from because I was finding myself shooting over par from the traditional tees. I had a bunch of people do it and kind of interesting to see how everyone plays, you know, moved up drastically from where they start. What are your thoughts on an idea like that of, of scaling the game to be less challenging for most and maybe more challenging for some? I think it's a super cool concept. I, <laughs> I, you've probably heard this before. People who go out and they're going to play this great golf course and they play from the tips even though they're you know, a 15 handicapper. And you'll hear this say it all the time. Well, I pay for the whole course. I'm going to play the whole course, right? And I understand it in concept, but... Again, if you think about your goal, your goal is really about enjoying the round, enjoying the course, and so forth. And if you want to go back to the tips and look at the course from there, that's fine, but you're probably not going to have a very enjoyable time. And so I think that what you're suggesting is a phenomenal idea, 
not only because it'll help you enjoy the game more, it, it absolutely don't think you're cheating yourself out of an experience, right? That you're not playing from the tips. But I also think it, it's a really cool way to see your progress because now you start moving, you know, you start moving back as you get better. There's a game that the guys play, the golf team plays, where they start teeing off on the same, like, let's say they on white tee box, and it's like match play. And if you win your match, you move back a tee box. And if you lose your match, you move forward a tee box. And so if you lose, you've got an advantage on the next hole. And it's really cool to see what happens because to be able to change your game based on the tee boxes you're playing and and the advantage you have and all of these kinds of things, it requires you to rethink what's happening and it becomes really fun. So I actually really like the idea that you're suggesting and, and would love to see people doing that. I'll tell you that the couple times that I've played in, in Europe, they ask you your handicap and they assign you a tee to play from. And I love the idea. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you to Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I really appreciate it. He is working on a new book that he was telling me about. Uh, I can't wait for this to come out. I'll definitely send an email notifying you, but watch for that. Dr. Mark Guadagnoli, new book coming out. Can't wait. He also joined us for some quick questions. You can get to know a little bit more about him. That is coming next week. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can listen to all the episodes. Really appreciate it. If you are not signed up uh, for a Golf Science Lab Insider completely free, you get our newsletter and everything that's going on first. Make sure to do that. GolfScienceLab.com slash insider. That is uh, really key to staying up to date on everything we're doing to document how to get better at golf. You definitely want to head over there. This episode was hosted and written by me, Cordy Walker. You can follow me on Twitter at Cordy Walker and was edited, mixed, and produced by Just Hit Published Productions.